Morning, everyone. There we go. Go ahead and open your Bibles to First Kings nine. Father, we want to see Jesus. We think of that statement and how fittingly it applies to your word as you read it, whether the Old Testament or New Testament alike. We desire to grow in our love and affection for your son and to understand him better. We know that that love and affection must be rooted in knowledge and truth, which comes from your word and what you have revealed about him to us. I know how thrilling it was for me to read the Old Testament and see more than just uh, different accounts and narratives, but to see your son through them as he's revealed through different individuals. And I desire that same thrill for the, the church. He's allowed me to pastor. We have been able to look at Solomon and see how he, how Jesus is the true and greater Solomon and, and how Solomon's kingdom prefigures Christ's kingdom. And we pray that any other wonderful truths that are contained here would be delivered to your people. And even if I don't have them on my notes, that you bring them to my mind, that I would be able to share them. And we thank you for this time, Lord, and pray that we would be able to remove any distractions and just focus on you and your, your word, what you want to say to us. I hope everyone sees us that at the time, not that I'm speaking to them, but that you are speaking to them, that they're hearing from the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that you desire a relationship with us and, and speak to us through your word. And so we pray for that anticipation and recognition and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This all this morning's sermon is a greater kingdom part two. We spent the last few weeks looking at how Jesus is greater than Solomon. We're in a series on wisdom because we thought we kind of need a wisdom for the season of life that we were in navigating through everything with COVID. I, hope, I hoped that that was applicable. Well, we looked at, um, you know, quite a few accounts with Solomon and I thought developed a considerable familiarity with him. And I thought that it would be sad if we were to develop all this familiarity with Solomon but not look past him or understand how he is a type or shadow of Jesus Christ. And just to really spell it out, the splendor and the majesty of Solomon's kingdom is a revelation or even uh, prefigures or foreshadows the splendor and majesty of Christ's kingdom. The, the wisdom with which Solomon ruled, uh, um, exercised justice and righteousness only prefigures the even greater wisdom with which Wisdom itself, Jesus being wisdom itself, will exercise justice and righteousness. So we've been looking at these verses. We, we made it through about the first uh, nine of them last week, seeing how Solomon's uh, glorious kingdom prefigures, foreshadows Christ's glorious kingdom. There's one other little thing in here that I'd like to uh, share with you because I think it's very important. It's uh, we're given a pretty clear window into the evangelistic, into God's evangelistic plan in the Old Testament. That's probably the best way to say it. These verses in 1 Kings 10 give us a wonder, wonderful window into God's evangelistic plan in the Old Testament. And I'm going to introduce Lesson 1, and then we'll look at the verses that explain this better. Lesson 1, God revealed himself to the world through Israel's obedience and disobedience. God revealed himself to the world through Israel's obedience and disobedience. God has always been working to reach man, to reconcile unredeemed man to himself, revealing his, his, himself, his son, the plan of salvation, the gospel in the Old Testament as well. And God primarily worked through that very small nation, the nation of Israel. Just to give us some perspective, uh, you can fit five Israels in the state of California. I think because the Old Testament focuses so much on Israel, you picture it a little bigger in your mind, but it's one size, the fifth of California. And God was using the people that would fill, become that nation to reveal himself to the surrounding nations. 
Now, here's how we we're going to see two examples of that. First of what it looks like if God, if Israel is disobedient and then if they were obedient. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago we were in Second Samuel seven and we were looking at the Davidic covenant? That's what's known as an unconditional covenant, unconditional in that it's not conditional on man, regardless of what man does or doesn't do. God is going to do what he said, which in that case was bring the Messiah into the world and that Messiah would be the son of David. And that means regardless of what David did or what any of his sons did, the Messiah would still come from David. And you can look at some of the things David did, his adultery, his murder, uh, Solomon's apostasy that could make you question why they, this Messiah was still able to be the son of David. And it just shows that God is going to be faithful even when we're unfaithful. I think probably seven times in verses nine through 15 of Second Samuel seven, we read two words. I will over and over. God says, I will, I will, because that covenant is about what he is going to do. Now, the Mosaic covenant, on the other hand, or when I say Mosaic covenant, think of the old covenant. Think of the law of Moses was a conditional covenant because it was entirely conditional on man. And instead of containing the words, I will, it typically contains what word? The word if someone say that if. If you do this, then this will happen, or then I will do this. And if you do this, then I will do this. And to summarize it or say it concisely, God basically told Israel, if you are obedient, I will bless you. If you are disobedient, I will discipline you. Now, what does that have to do with God's evangelistic plan? The magnificent thing to me is regardless of what Israel did or didn't do, whether they were obedient or disobedient, God was going to reveal himself to the surrounding nations in first Kings nine. Go ahead and look with me at verse six. I think the simplest way to say it is there was no question of whether God was going to be glorified. There was just a question of whether Israel was going to make it easier or hard on themselves. Right. So in verse six here, notice it says, but if because we're talking conditionally here, God says, if you turn aside from following me, you are your children and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but you go and you serve other gods and worship them. Then I'll cut off Israel from the land that I've given them and the house that I've consecrated for not my name, referring to the temple, I'll cast out of my sight, which we saw happen. Right. The Babylonians came into the land, destroyed the temple. So God said he would punish Israel. And then look what would happen. Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples in this house. Referring to the temple will become a heap of ruins, which did happen. Everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they, the surrounding nations, will say, because they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So do you see the evangelism? God was going to discipline Israel so badly that other nations would look and recognize God had done it. And then they would come to do what? Fear God. That's really the case. God would have to punish Israel for their sins. This would reveal God to the surrounding nations. And then those nations would come to fear him. Now, what does this have with the account in 1 Kings 10 we've been looking at with the Queen of Sheba? Well, that presents... The other side. So in first Kings 10, we're getting to see what the nation of Israel looks like when they're obedient. 
This is why they were in their golden years or the pinnacle of their prosperity. This is why the Queen of Sheba would hear of all that was happening with the nation of Israel and want to come and just see if it is true because they have been blessed so much. And I want you to see how God worked through this. Look in, now in 1 Kings 10. We're familiar with these verses, so I'll go quickly. 1 Kings 10, verse 1. The Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to test him with hard questions. So do you see God revealing himself to, in this instance, the Queen of Sheba through the prosperity of the nation of Israel? She heard of Solomon's fame. And then you say, well, what if she just heard of Solomon's fame? That doesn't mean that she came to know God. Well, she actually said concerning the Lord. He was already revealing himself to her in this slighter sense. Verse six, she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. So first she hears of the famous Solomon and she hears of this report. Now, let me ask you something. She's hearing these things before what? Before what? Before Facebook, before cell phones, before text messaging, before television, before all that. We've got news spreading. Now, she comes from what we would know as Yemen. Fifteen hundred miles away. The word had reached her about Solomon's fame. God had no. Here's my point. God had no problem. Sometimes people say this, but let me get a little momentum here. If we back up, there's these concerns about God reaching, whether it's, you know, the people in the tribes deep in the wilderness. I just want you to see that even in the ancient world, God had no problem reaching the people that he wanted to reach. God has never sat on his throne and wondered what to do. He's never sat there and said, well, what about these people, you know, and they want to know me or they want to have a relationship with me. Or what am I supposed to do? How can I how can how can I get my my the knowledge of me to them? That doesn't happen. And we're seeing a tremendous instance here. We're fifteen hundred miles away. She's learning about God through Solomon's fame, through the blessing the nation of Israel was experiencing. It sounded too good to be true. She goes to check it out for herself. And then verse seven, she says, I did not believe the reports. Is it plural in your Bibles? Reports, plural? Multiple times she keeps hearing. I could be wrong, but I'm guessing many people don't even like traveling presently. The travel in the ancient world was particularly difficult. I imagine her not wanting to go, but the reports keep coming in until she finally says, you know, I'm used to luxury, but I will suffer to get there so that I can see this for myself. I didn't believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen and behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity, they surpass, again, the report that I had heard. So God bless Solomon and the nation of Israel more than she had even it had been rumored to her. And notice the word repeated report report three times, two verses to emphasize how much God was revealing himself or reaching out to the surrounding nations. Now you say, well, OK, he's reaching out or revealing himself. But was it really that evangelistic? Would, would people really be able to come to faith simply because God is blessing it, blessing Israel so much? Well, yes, that's exactly what happened with the Queen of Sheba. Look at verse nine. She says, now tell me if this doesn't sound like faith. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and has set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever, he's made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now, if you happen to doubt for a second that she came to faith or she came to believe, you don't have to doubt it. 
once you read the Gospels, because she's plucked up out of the Old Testament and she's set down, not just as an example, but as a rebuke to the Jews in Jesus' day who were unbelieving. So the idea was she heard Saul, Jesus says this woman came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon that something greater than Solomon is here. So she heard the wisdom of Solomon and was able to believe in the God of Israel as a result. They had wisdom. They had Jesus in their midst, wisdom incarnate in their midst, and they did not believe. So she con- she condemns them. Now, I want to conclude this lesson by saying this. One of the things that stood out to me is that no matter what man does, no matter what we do, God is going to be what? He's going to be glorified. And he is going to be honored. And he is going to be exalted. It just seems that there are probably easier or more difficult ways for that to occur in our lives. I'm not saying that if we're obedient, we're going to be blessed. But I am saying this, if we're disobedient, we're going to be disciplined and God can reveal himself to others through that. Now, my desire would be that we would be obedient and God would be able to work through that and reveal Christ to those around us that way versus having to discipline and chastise us to make himself known. Now, I can move into the typology between Jesus and Solomon. And if you look at verse nine again, in particular, the beginning of the verse, it says, blessed be the Lord, your God. Who has delighted in you? God delighted in Solomon. You know, we're looking past Solomon to see Christ. I mean, who does who does God the father delight in more than his son? And this brings us to lesson two. Jesus is greater than Solomon in delighting God. Jesus is greater than Solomon in delighting God. Something just occurred to me while you write that down. When I used to be a school teacher, I recognized I couldn't teach or no teacher. Maybe this will be an encouragement to homeschooling mothers too. teach your students or your children everything. So you hope that you would teach them to learn themselves or teach them to teach themselves or teach them to become learners. And I, I have that desire in a sense. It, it has occurred to me that I can't obviously teach you everything that's contained in the Bible, but I can give you some resources that will allow you to learn these books of the Bible or things in the Bible better when you read it yourself. And so with this, I want you to be able to look correctly at the book of Proverbs. Okay, now keep that in mind. Jesus didn't say the Queen of Sheba came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and then say that Jesus is wiser. This is what I would you would expect Jesus to say. The Queen of Sheba came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone wiser is here. But that's not what Jesus said. He said something greater is here. Why didn't Jesus say, and this is important, it is not just semantics. Why didn't Jesus say that he's wiser than Solomon? He would be shortchanging himself. It's not an issue of Solomon being wise and Jesus being wiser. It's an issue of Solomon being wise, but Jesus being wisdom. First Corinthians one twenty four. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Maybe you remember when Jake preached on these verses. First Corinthians one thirty. Christ Jesus became he became to us wisdom from God. Colossians two three in Christ are hidden All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
all the treasures, not, not just some of them. And this is why we're talking, you know, the Greek alphabet. He is the alpha. He is the omega, the first letter, the last. All, all knowledge, all truth comes from him. Now, follow me for a moment. Because Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. That means all of the wisdom in the book of Proverbs looks to Jesus. And that's what I didn't say. I didn't say every every proverb looks to Jesus because there are some proverbs there about foolishness. And it's not to say that those apply to him unless you're to say they apply to him and that he didn't he wasn't foolish or didn't do those things. The verse is discouraging. So Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. So all the wisdom of the Proverbs point to him. And this is why. And this is important. If you pursue wisdom in your life, you are pursuing Christ to pursue wisdom is to pursue Christ. And this is why there are so many verses in the book of Proverbs about the value of wisdom. If you understand that Jesus is wisdom incarnate, then to understand the value of wisdom is to understand the value of Christ himself. You, if you understand that Jesus is wisdom incarnate, then when you read these verses about the wisdom of about the about the value of wisdom, you can even see the close association between them and Jesus himself. Let me do a little substitution while I read Proverbs three fourteen and 15 wisdom's proceeds or what wisdom offers or Christ's proceeds are far better than the profits of silver and wisdom's gain or Christ's gain than fine gold. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. Who would disagree that Christ is more precious than rubies? Proverbs 8, 9, 8, 11, and 19. Wisdom is better than rubies. Its fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold. Proverbs 16, 16. How much better to get wisdom or to get Christ than to get gold? Wisdom is... is uh, promoted, exalted so highly within within the book of Proverbs that you could almost start to say wisdom sounds like a God. Well, in a sense, because Jesus is wisdom incarnate, we are being pointed toward God. We are being pointed toward wisdom itself in Christ. Now, because wisdom or because Christ is so valuable, what are we to do with it? We are to pursue it. We are to Seek it, which scripture tells us to do repeatedly in Proverbs chapter two, verse four. Seek wisdom or seek Christ as silver. Search for wisdom as for hidden treasures. Proverbs three thirteen. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. How many of you were happy when you found Christ? When the gospel was shared with you? I don't know about you, but for me, I, I this is a crude way of saying it. I wish I could do it more elegant, eloquently, but I felt like I dodged a bullet. That's just what kind of kept coming to mind. Like, I can't believe I was going this direction in my life without knowing the gospel on my way to hell. And then happy is the man who finds wisdom. I was happy as a man to find Christ. Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Now, keeping that in mind and one reason. So when the queen of Sheba, she's pursuing Solomon, this picture type of wisdom it's just a picture or type of pursuing Christ or from the ends of the earth that we would go to, to meet him or hear him. Now, the book of Proverbs, it's written primarily as a father speaking to his son, right? You read the book of Proverbs and you've got this father speaking to his son, regularly telling him something like this. My son, 
Hear the instruction of your father or heed your your father's words. And one of the themes in the book is that the son who does that. Does what for his father? The son who heeds or obeys his father does what for his father? Makes him glad. That's one of the other verses you read through Proverbs. Proverbs 10.1. Proverbs 15.20. A wise son makes a glad father. Any sons listening to that? There's a lot of truth in that. You want, you want pleased and happy and glad fathers? Then be a wise son. Proverbs 23.26. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. All right. Now let me connect the dots. If Jesus is wisdom incarnate, if all the Proverbs, all the wisdom in the Proverbs are pointing toward Jesus, all the Proverbs point toward Jesus, then Jesus is that wise son who makes his father glad. When you read the book of Proverbs and you're looking at that perfectly wise son who embodies wisdom and pleases his father, you must see Christ there. He is being revealed to you. He is the perfectly wise son who, who, who is, whose father delights in him, to use the language from verse 9. Now, you think of Jesus' baptism. Famously, all three persons with, of, the, of the triune nature of God are present, the Holy Spirit descending, Jesus being baptized, and then the voice of the father ringing out. In Matthew 3.17, he says, A voice from heaven, This is my beloved son with whom... I am well pleased or in whom I delight or this is the wise son who makes me glad. And so the point is this that I want you to see when you read verse nine and you see the delight that God feels towards Solomon. It pales in comparison to the to the delight that God has in his son, Jesus Christ, no matter how wise or how well Solomon executed justice. And no matter how pleased the father might have been in Solomon during that season, it pales in comparison to the delight that he has toward his son, who is perfectly wise, perfectly obedient. Verse nine, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. My heart would be as your pastor that you wouldn't you would never be able to read that verse without seeing Jesus in it. I would desire that you never are able to read verse nine. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and has set you on the throne of Israel without looking past Solomon to see Jesus there. The true king to sit on the throne of Israel. Look at verse 10. I'm going to read through these verses pretty quickly. I might even skip some of them. She gave the king 120 talents of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious. This is the queen of Sheba. She gives all this to Solomon. Never again such an abundance of spices as those that the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of, there's this big fleet. There's all this gold that's brought to him. Um, there's some discussion of the wood for the house of the Lord. Now look at verse 13. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. She turned, she went back to her own land with her own servants. Now look at verse 14. The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Does anything in that verse stick out to you? In verse 14, huh? I mean, don't you kind of wonder why not 665? Couldn't it have been 667 talents of gold that came to Solomon? So Revelation 13, 18 tells us that the, that the Antichrist is associated with the number 666. 
The only other individual in all of Scripture associated with the number 666 is Solomon. Now, think about this. If the Antichrist resembles Christ and Solomon resembles Christ, then it makes sense that Solomon would also resemble the Antichrist or the Antichrist would also resemble Solomon. Now, you perhaps are uncomfortable with that because you don't want to think of the, the glory and majesty of Solomon and believe that that has uh, pictures or prefigures what, what it will be like with the Antichrist. But understand, the word anti, it, it can mean opposed to, but the word anti can also mean instead of. And this is important because we tend to think that the way Jesus went around preaching good and doing good, the Antichrist is going to be like the opposite of that, and he's just going to go around preaching evil and doing all these evil things as though he's like the supremely wicked person like Jesus was the supremely good or righteous person. And that's not the case. Yes, the Antichrist will do some evil things, but we even see it today. You will see people look, whether they're whether they're, they can be in the highest office in our land, they can be the president, and you will see people look at them and believe that they are good or righteous individuals while they are promoting the murder of babies. You will see people exalt or look to be saved by these individuals while they destroy God's institution of marriage or while they destroy the identity of men and women, while they're supporting transgenderism. You'll see people look and hold these people in a very high regard. That is not a very far cry from the reality when the Antichrist comes on the scene. The Antichrist will commit these evil acts But at the same time, he's going to be a very Solomon-like figure. Let me give you just some of the similarities. Or here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. Do you see our world embracing leaders who do or believe evil things while expecting those leaders to save them or save us? Yes, we see that. We see people with horrific ideologies who are being Revered, or that's how they end up in the offices that they do. They receive the votes from people. Now, so my point is, it's equally fitting to see the Antichrist as the instead of Christ, who will be embraced as the world's savior instead of the real savior. Consider these similarities. The Antichrist, he's going to have amazing fame, amazing wealth, amazing power, amazing charisma, like Solomon had. The way that the Queen of Sheba could come and question Solomon and he could answer all of her deep penetrating questions will be somewhat like the wisdom that it seems the Antichrist has when he's able to answer everyone's questions. Be that leader that people have always wanted. The Antichrist, he'll seem wise. He'll seem charming. Like Solomon. The Antichrist will live lavishly, extravagantly. Like Solomon. The Antichrist will be steeped in idolatry. He will lead the people away from the worship of the true and living God. Like Solomon in the next chapter, we know that's what he did. One of the most interesting associations between Solomon and the Antichrist is they're the individuals responsible with building the temple. If you were to go, I listened to a gentleman talk about this. To Israel and ask the Jews how they will recognize their Messiah when he comes, since they have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They will tell you that he is the man who will bring peace to the Middle East and allow them to rebuild their temple. We also know of that man, but we call him the Antichrist, right? So it's a, it's a set stage 
for Jews who rejected Christ. I mean, John 5.43, I believe Jesus said, I come in my own name and you do not receive me. And so because of that, you will receive someone who comes in his own name. Jesus said that to the Jews. So the Antichrist will rebuild the Jews' temple like Solomon built it in the first place. The Antichrist famous, worshipped throughout the world. We haven't got to the verses yet, but we're going to see you can become uncomfortable with the way the world treats Solomon toward the end of this chapter. Just keep this in mind, but here's my point. The way that the Antichrist is famous and worshipped and people seek an audience with him, there's nobody in all of Scripture that prefigures that better than Solomon, especially at the end of this chapter. Most obviously, these are the two men in Scripture associated with the number 666. Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 11:14. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. It is a very foolish person who believes that the devil would come looking like the devil. These verses are abundantly clear that he would attempt to deceive by looking righteous. Now, if Satan and his servants don't come looking evil, but instead disguise themselves to look good, then how do you think Satan's greatest servant would come? Looking good, not looking evil. In other words, when you're looking or if you were looking for the Antichrist or if you happened to be here when he came, you're not looking for evil incarnate. You're looking for someone who has some semblance to Solomon. Solomon is a very dramatic picture or type of him. He will look, the Antichrist will look more like Solomon than evil incarnate, even if that's what he is. Look at verse 15. I'm going to go through these verses pretty quickly. So besides all that gold, there's also this wealth that came from explorers, from the businesses, the merchants. He receives all this. He makes all these expensive shields. Go ahead and look at verse 18. The king also made a great ivory throne. He overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps leading up to it. There was a round top and on each side of the seat or the throne were armrests and there were two lions standing beside the armrests. And then there were 12 lions stood there, one on each of one on each end of a step on the six steps. And then it says the like of it was never made in any kingdom. Now, I'm sure this was an, a magnificent throne to see the six steps leading up to it. Lions on the end of each step and then the two large lions that stand or seem to you know, be on each side. And it says that there's so magnificent, there's never been anything else like it before. And why is that? Why can that be said and be true? Because Christ's throne isn't on the earth yet. And this brings us to lesson two. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part six, the throne he sits on. I'll give you two descriptions of Christ on the throne and just tell you that I'm convinced Solomon doesn't compare. It's actually nice to read the description of Solomon's throne and then see how much it pales in comparison to what we read about Christ. Probably the most famous vision, in, at least in the Old Testament, maybe along with Ezekiel, of God is Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We typically say that Isaiah saw God sitting on the throne, which is true. But if you read John 12, 41... You learn that specifically Isaiah saw the second person 
of the triune nature of God, Jesus himself sitting on the throne. I mean, if you're ever dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ, take them to ask them who's sitting on the throne. They'll tell you it's God. Bring them to John 12. Show them that we have New Testament evidence that what Isaiah specifically saw, because the New Testament tells us nobody has seen the Father. If nobody has seen the Father, then who did Isaiah see? He saw Jesus. Nobody has seen the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. He saw the second person of the Trinity here. And above him, verse 2, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two covered his face. With two, he covered his face. Couldn't even, seem, couldn't even look on the face of God. Two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, after reading that, how does Solomon's throne sound? Insignificant. It pales in comparison. Revelation 20, verse, I mean, you can put, a, put a statues of lions around a throne, but does that compare to angels flying around, calling out, the, the pillars and the columns shaking, the room filled with smoke? I mean, just unimaginable. They can't even, they seem to not even be able to look at the face of God. The things that are in store for believers, as 1 Corinthians 2 says, it's just, it's unimaginable. We just get this window on this side of heaven. But what we will actually see someday, I mean, it, it's tremendous, just the consideration of it. Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is Jesus. It's the, the, judge, it's the great white throne judgment. All, all belief, all judgment has been committed to the Son. It is Christ sitting on this throne. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them. So terrifying that it seems all of creation itself. I mean, you talk about creation groaning under sin, as Romans 8 says. But here you've got creation just trying to flee in terror from the magnificence of the throne of God. I would say Solomon can't compete with that. No matter how magnificent he looked on his throne, it's nothing compared to what it'll be like when we see Christ sitting on his throne. Verse 21, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. The vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were gold. Nothing was silver because silver was considered as worthless in his days. Verse 22, the king had this fleet of ships. Go to verse 23. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Why did Solomon excel all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom? Because Christ hadn't come yet. Because Christ is not established on the earth. You can read verse 23 and you can substitute Jesus. And it's, and it's perfectly fitting. Thus, King Jesus excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And so I do believe that Solomon excelled, excelled all the kings of the earth in terms of riches and wisdom, but just because Christ hadn't returned. This brings us to lesson three. Jesus is greater than Solomon. In part three, he is king of kings. And that he is king of kings. Solomon, he seemed literally to be the king of kings in his day, the Lord of lords in his day. But when Jesus returns, Revelation nineteen sixteen, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be the true and greater King of Kings, the true and greater Lord of Lords. Again, no matter how great Solomon seemed, absolutely nothing compared to seeing Christ in his glory. Look at verse 24. 
the whole earth. These are those uncomfortable verses. I can only be comfortable with them if I look past them to see Jesus. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules so much year by year. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. The entire the entire known world seeking this one man, he's his just to be in his presence, just to hear his wisdom. He's already unspeakably rich, but surprisingly, what all these people want to do. Apparently make him richer, bring him all of their gifts. It's like they're worshiping him. But they prefigure Jesus. Lesson two, part eight. Jesus is greater than Solomon in the worship he receives. Jesus is greater than Solomon in the worship he receives. The way the Queen of Sheba, the way all of these people seek Solomon and his presence it's prefiguring the way the nations of the earth will seek Christ's presence. Now, and that is not my inference. When I tell you that the nations of the earth will seek the presence of the King of Kings, when they will, in all of their effort, try to draw near to him, that's what Scripture says. That's not a conclusion I'm coming to by looking at typology between Jesus and Solomon. When Jesus rules and reigns, the world will adore him. Everyone will want to hear his wisdom. Everyone will bring him offerings and gifts. Listen to just three verses describing that day. Psalm 86, 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Zechariah 14, 16. Everyone shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So, so important is it for Christ to be worshipped that if nations don't, they're going to experience drought. They will be punished for that. Now, as you read the Old Testament, you see verses like this prophesying of the worship of Christ. And if I, if I was to ask you, why did the Jews reject Jesus in his first coming? It's because of these prophecies. They did not see him as that king to be worshipped. They despised him. They rejected him. But these prophecies must still, in, in Christ's day, did the nations come to worship him? There's only a, a remnant that worshipped him. Largely, or the majority rejected him. But these prophecies must still be fulfilled. So when we read about the nations coming to worship Christ, this will be the case in the future when he returns and his kingdom is established. And many of these. And my whole point is, if you want to know what that looks like, you will have no better window than what you read here in First Kings 10, as it's described with Solomon. Look at our remaining verses. Verse 26, he gathers. We're familiar with these verses. We read them some months back regarding Solomon's compromise. So I'll read them quickly. He gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He stationed in the cities. Verse 21, silver became as common in Jerusalem as stone because he had so much gold. Verse 28, notice he imported horses from Egypt. Verse 29, a chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver. These final verses are revealing the compromise that led to Solomon 
being disciplined, including having 10 of the 12 tribes ripped away from him. And you get the impression that all 12 tribes would have been ripped away from Solomon, if not for what? The covenant that God had made with Solomon's father, David. And again, I'm not assuming that or guessing that the Bible tells us that Rehoboam would have lost everything, if not for the sake of David. God told kings, don't multiply wealth. We see Saul multiplied it so much. Silver is worthless. Don't multiply horses. He multiplied them. Don't return to Egypt. Don't import horses from Egypt. He did that. Don't multiply wives. We go to the next. We're not going to go to the next chapter. But in the next chapter, 700 wives, 300 concubines, everything a king's not supposed to do, then engages in terrible idolatry. And this brings us to part nine. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part nine, his obedience. He's greater than Solomon in his obedience. Solomon was a compromising, sinful king. Jesus is the perfectly holy and obedient king. I think it's 2 Samuel 7.14. God says to David about Solomon, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. If he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men. Remember we read that and, and see the typology with Jesus. Well, Solomon was disciplined. God was that father to him. But this is why Jesus is greater. He was that son who didn't, who didn't need to be disciplined who did not need to be punished, was perfectly holy. He, he, that's why he pleases the Father. The Father is so glad in him. Now, I'm sure there were ways that Solomon helped his people prior to his apostasy. I'm sure there were ways he was a good king, but I can tell you he didn't help them spiritually, at least not the way that the King of Kings does. Someday, and you should listen because this is the same for you, I'm going to stand before God. Now, I have done terrible things. But when God looks at me, he will not see those terrible things. I will commit other sins in the future. Yet when I stand before God, he will not see those sins either. Instead, when the Father, when God looks at me, he will see me cloaked in the perfect righteousness of his son. When God looks at me, he will not see any of those sins because they have all been punished. Instead, he will see me the way that he sees his own son. And why am I saying that? I'm saying it because I'm so thankful that I have been given the righteousness of Christ and not the righteousness of Solomon. I'm so thankful that this is not the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that would need to save me or that I am one of his people or subjects. That my Savior, that my King gives me his own righteousness, lived his life in my place as my substitute so that I might stand before God someday and as though I had lived his life. Now, this finishes our typology. I had with Solomon and Jesus. I had more examples, but I wanted to wrap it all up in this sermon. We're going to take a quick quiz. I hope the kids might listen, uh, see how well they were paying attention during these during these few weeks. I left a blank on your on your bulletin for you to fill in the answer when when I give you the quiz. There's one thing I want to ask you first to set set you up for success with this quiz. Why couldn't David build the temple. I suspect some of you know. He had, he had shed blood. He'd been a man of war. That's exactly right. And God wanted a man of peace instead. Listen to these verses. First Chronicles 22.8. God told David, you shed much blood. You've waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name. Behold, a son shall be born to you. Referring to Solomon. We're looking past him to Jesus. 
who shall be a man of rest and peace. His name shall be Solomon. I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. So Solomon is able to build the temple because he is this man of peace. Now, with that in mind, here are the hints for your quiz. Tell me who I'm talking about. Just give me one name. He's the son of David. Who's that? <laughs> Henry? Well, you've got to write it down, Henry, okay? He's the son of David. God said he is his father. He builds the house of God. He is a man of peace. He has divine wisdom from God. He rules over Israel during their golden years. He has a glorious, magnificent kingdom. He rules with justice and righteousness. The world adores him, comes to hear his wisdom, brings him gifts and offerings. What'd you write down, Henry? Is Henry the one who said something? What'd you write down for your answer? <laughs> All right, you can put Jesus or Solomon. I just want you to see this. This is what I'm doing. I became a Christian. I know I'm, maybe I'm going a little over. I'll just pretend like I'm not. I'll pretend like I have enough time. And I started to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And it changed my life. And I fell in, more in love with my Savior. I saw him presented through the types and developed a wonderful understanding of what he had done for me. And I want that for my church. I want 76% of the Bible is the Old Testament. I would hate for you to read it and not see Christ. I would hate for you to go through all of these wonderful accounts where God wants you to see his son, but miss him. And so look for him. I want to conclude by sharing something with you that I think of when I read this account. And it's that the Queen of Sheba... I see some of my own testimony through her, interestingly. When I read about the Queen of Sheba, I don't, you know, like, who do I identify with in Scripture? There are times maybe I feel like I identify with this person or that person. But regarding conversion, I probably feel like I identify most with the Queen of Sheba, and here's why. She had heard of Solomon, but she didn't know him yet. I was raised in a works-based religion. I, could t- I knew who Jesus was. I had heard of him. But I didn't have a relationship with him yet. Now, when she came to see him for herself, what did she say? The half of it was not told to me. Solomon ended up being greater than she imagined. She was overwhelmed by what what she saw when she was in his presence. Now, similarly, when I came to see for myself, when I because if you're in a workspace religion like I was, you don't appreciate what Christ does because you're too consumed with what you're doing. You can't be thankful for what Jesus has done for you because you're too proud of what you're doing for Jesus. And so when I came to Christ and I understood what it, that it was about what he had done for me and not about what I had done for him, I felt overwhelmed. The half of it had not been told to me. Jesus ended up being greater than I imagined. Like her, I felt overwhelmed by him. To feel as though he would want me in his presence or would want a relationship with me. Now, perhaps you're like the Queen of Sheba. Maybe you've only heard the reports. You have not found out for yourself. My encouragement is to follow the Queen of Sheba's example. Find out for yourself. There is a reason that Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Queen of Sheba, she had to take that trip for herself, and we must do the same. Nobody can find out for us. 
Maybe you've heard of the reports, but you need to go and see. Nobody can choose for you. Even having a conversation just this morning with one of my children and saying, your mother and I, we cannot do this for you. This is something you must do. And that's what I would say. Everyone must decide to take this trip for themselves to find out if Christ is as great as we've all heard. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his greatness. We thank you for the way he's revealed through these individuals in the Old Testament. We thank you for the, the Bible and that from Genesis to Revelation, you want us to see your son and grow. You want to grow our faith in him and you want us thankful for what he has done for us. And so I, pray, I thank you for Solomon and his life and the way that you used him. I, it's tremendous to see your son through his through the majesty and glory of his kingdom as we wait in anticipation for Christ's return and him setting things right. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us anticipation and excitement about seeing Christ on his throne and about his kingdom being established and the nations of the earth seeking to worship him. If if that's not in our hearts for whatever reason, Lord, I pray that you would plant it there, that you would give us hearts that just long for your son and to be part of his kingdom and to see the thing, the, the ugly, wicked things we see in the world, to see them righted, Lord. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.